What's bored gamifying my emergency department experience? My name is Jeff. This is How It's Med, specifically MedTech Talks, and we're chatting with Dr. Teresa Chan. Dr. Chan, how are you doing? Hello, how are you doing? Uh, I, I'm, I'm just debating whether or not that was at all a sufficient intro to introduce the sheer scope of what you've done. Oh, it's fine. I mean, I think I don't only just do one thing, so it's hard to encapsulate me. I think it frustrates some people sometimes, you know, we like to file everybody under, you know, one or two little widgets sometimes in our brain, but um, I'm trying to defy that. So I'm just trying to be a polymath. I think that's 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 probably a good way to summarize what this conversation is going to be about. But um, you, just off the air, we had talked a little bit about how you like to be addressed. It's Teresa T Chan. Yeah, yeah, T and like my first initial and then Chan, so T Chan. All right, that's what people call me. All right, okay. So without further ado, we'll we'll just jump right in. I think the the usual question that we start off these conversations with is because quite a few of our interviewees are uh, physicians. How, why did you get interested in medicine? Um, I'm pretty sure it was brainwashing. My dad's a doc. Um, and so, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you round on weekends with your dad and the nurses feed you cookies at the nursing station while he, you know, like uh, goes to see his patients. And, you know, I think you get a positive opinion of what healthcare can be uh, when you spend your uh, summers filing files and taking care of the office because it's the family business. I think you kind of get uh, brought into a world where um, healthcare is part of who you are, right? I, I mean, I think that when you have a parent who is a physician, you start to see the world the way that they do, right? Mm. Uh, engineers, physicians, uh, consultants often um, end up probably raising kids that see the world as fixable, as changeable, as yeah. something that we're supposed to stand up and help others solve. Um, and I think that that is so fundamental to who you become. Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise that my um, parents have two uh, women physicians that they've raised and a son who has gone into business to solve problems, <laughs> that... you know? So I think that that's what happens is, uh, is a good part of that. I, I did have, you know, a fit of, um, uh, indecision at some point yeah. and decided that maybe I didn't want to be a physician. And so I did explore going to teacher's college and things like mm. that. Um, I do not regret doing that because that has opened up a huge part of my life. Um, mm -hmm. and is the reason why I do both um, medicine and medical education now. So you, you, you kind of mentioned that a little bit at the side and my cat's just creeping right here. So I apologize if it creeps right in. His name is uh, Goose. He's a regular mm -hmm. guest. Um, but, um, essentially like what motivated you to pursue that, you could say like side quest of education at a teacher's college first, was there any like particular sparking moment? Yeah, I don't think it was a sparking moment, but I think it was a realization during my med school interviews, the first time I applied, um, that I felt like a bit of an imposter um, in the room when people asked me why I wanted to do medicine. Mm. And I hadn't done the introspection. I hadn't done the deep work I needed to do about myself in order to really understand my own motivations. It just felt right. Yeah. And you know how sometimes, um, sometimes when it may be right, um, but sometimes if you can't articulate why that is, um, it's hard, right? Sometimes you just know that that's the right color, but, um, an interior decorator should be able to explain to you with color theory, why these two colors go together 
and why two other colors might not go together. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between someone who intuitively knows design and has a good eye and someone who has the technical expertise of understanding. I think I wasn't a technical expert about myself yet. I, I needed to do that introspection. Now, Teachers College has a way of doing that. <laughs> Anyone that's ever done an education degree realizes that, especially at the one that I did, which is at, which is at U of T, they, they do actually ask you to think very, very introspectively about who you are so that you can start to begin a professional identity formation that's that is that that accentuates um, who uh, you're going to be as a, uh, as a teacher, right? And so a big part of the journey that I went through was that I thought very deeply about what my values were, uh, my axiology, people would say, like, and, and what, and how I thought, saw the world and that changed my perspective mm -hmm. and allowed me to then actually the next year, better articulate why I wanted to be a physician actually. Mm -hmm. And it didn't mean that I wasn't going to do education because lo and behold, I do both. Um, at a very high level now, but it's, uh, one, one of those things where I think I needed, um, to be guided through that thinking. Mm -hmm. Did you, I guess, did you ever get to actually teach, um, outside of a medical context before med school or was medical education kind of a one year thing that you did before reapplying to med school? Uh, it wasn't medical education. I did my bachelor's of education gotcha. in, um, um, intermediate senior. Um, high school education, right? Yeah. So biochemistry and um, uh, science. And so I, I did a teacher's college is uh, one half theoretical and one half practical, right? Mm. So I had two embedded pr practica gotcha. where I would just show up, do lesson plans, teach as a student teacher. I don't know if you ever had student teachers. When I you did. Were at, they were my favorite yeah, teachers. So that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, were there any particular moments that stood out to you during your practica overall that, you know, taught you lessons um that you still apply today as part of your med ed work yeah of course i mean i think that education is education so whether you're teaching um a remedial science class for people who just have to get their grade 10 science in order to pass high school for the sixth time or you're teaching a med student who doesn't quite get what's going on i think it's about learner-centeredness mm -hmm. it's about knowing what your learners understand um and then giving them the thing that they need to go further, right? What is learner-centeredness? Because I think that's a topic I want to delve a little bit into before we delve into more of your other work, because I think it pertains quite a bit to it. I mean, in my education so far, or my experience with medical education, a lot of it has just been like fire hosing, like facts at students. And it hasn't mm -hmm. been particularly learner-centered apart from times when we're able to work one-on-one -on -one with a sim table at, uh, in the cadaver lab or one-on-one -on -one right. with an instructor in clinical settings when even that's yeah. fairly rare. So what is learner-centeredness and why isn't it common in medicine uh, or is it? I think it's more common than you're recalling. Okay. Cause I think that a lot of the time the learner-centeredness isn't in your big classrooms, like you said, it's in those other experiences. It's in someone who tailors exactly how you might think about a case gotcha. in a clinical setting. You might not see that as teaching or learner-centeredness. You might just say, oh, my attending just didn't like the way I presented my case. And I think that we as teachers need to do a better job at taking that. But sometimes some of our teachers, again, they're intuitive teachers, they're talented, 
but sometimes they haven't actually had the advanced training. Mm-hmm. To be able to know what they're doing is actually a very scaffolded, learner-centered activity. Yeah. And so it's not very um, often that people will have both of those things. It's why I've gone on to actually focus a big part of my career right now on teacher training, faculty development, and um, developing people as educators so that they can actually have that power of insight um, and the power of language, really, to be able to articulate what, what they are that they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Again, let's drop it back to that interior designer, right? Um, design school is important, right? Because in order to have the training to be able to do the job, um, you need the practical, you need the theoretical, and then you need to be able to interlace those two. Same thing happens with education, uh, whether it's at the bedside mm-hmm. uh, with a learner, right, where you're customizing things because you're asking them, you know, people talk about pimping, which I don't like the term, but, you know, you get a whole bunch of buzz questions and learners feel like they're just being, you know, like interrogated. And yeah. yet what the teacher is trying to understand is that they're trying to understand where you, where you are, yeah. because it's not like we run, you don't run around like a video game with a score with HP points over your head, right? I like wish. That's, not, I wish. that's not what we do. <laughs> All right, because if I could, then that would be amazing because we could have AR and just see where you are in medical training, but your strengths and weaknesses are in a glance, right? But it's more like a video game where you know your HP points, Mm. but you have no idea what everyone else's HP points are. So HP points are hit points. And that would be like just for the readers. For all our non-gamers. Non-gamers, right? Um, The idea would be that sometimes you run around not really knowing who you're talking to. And so... um, you know, it's always embarrassing when you find out your learner was, you know, a PhD in physiology and uh, you've just been t- asking them questions about physiology and they are nailing every question and you're like, oh, you seem to know a lot about this. Oh yeah, I did my PhD in uh, physiology and uh, I used to be a prof in, and I'm like, okay, um, so let's talk about that now. <laughs> right? And so, so I think that um, some of the things that you've experienced um, if labeled differently yeah. and seen for a different lens, you'd understand that part of it is that we're trying to understand and diagnose where you're at and you're learning. And then from there, we then ask the next question because that next question, when you're in that, what we call the zone of proximal development, the space where you're at the edge of what you're comfortable with, with what you know, what you're capable of, mm-hmm. and we push it just a little bit further. That's when the learning happens. Mm-hmm. Of course, what I have to do is also make sure I, have the safety net and the trapeze net and like you know all the cushions lined up so that when you fall the patient doesn't get hurt exactly but the idea is that um great bespoke teaching may not always feel and look like what you think teaching and learner centeredness is because it sometimes feels uncomfortable yeah that's fair that's fair i mean now that you're mentioning it i i, I do recall a lot of clinical education being very learner centered. So thank you for teaching me that. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip over the good stuff, but, um, I'll, I'll go back to it later on. Why did you end up doing a master's of health professions education later on after your MD and your residency? Um, so I started it in my residency, um, mm. and I did the master's after, uh, because I had to finish it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I started in PGY4 in emergency medicine. Um, there's a basic fellowship year. It's now in PGY5, yeah. which would have been easier, but um, it, it used to be in PGY4 and then we would halt everything and go on sabbatical for a year to just learn emergency medicine really well, conquer the exam. 
and then continue. Um, and uh, what it actually ended up being was that I, um, I, I, I'd always wanted to do more education work, and I realized that in at least the medical setting, and probably across healthcare, um, the standard is not. There's no bachelors of educations for um, doing health professions education and medical education, and so. Um, that's just not, that doesn't exist because most people have a professional degree. So would they go back to do a bachelor's? Probably not. And so I think it's probably a branding thing. Um, and so, I master's uh, education is kind of the industry, was the industry standard at the time when I was doing my medical school work and I had volunteered on all the committees and I came across a mentor who said, Hey, you should probably consider doing a master's at some point. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, what do I get out of it? And they're like, well. I think to do the kind of work that you're doing right now as a learner, because I was volunteering for all these committees and doing curricular design and things like that, you might need the degree to get in the door when you're a junior. Um, and so um, that was one piece of advice. The other part of it is that um, if I wanted to go on to do research work, um, I didn't have the training to do research. I was interested in doing research, but I actually didn't know how to do any research. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was the other impetus was that I wanted to find a master's program that would allow me to learn research methods in health professional education. That's fascinating. Okay. Two questions there then. Uh, number one, what was the main difference between what you learned during that master's, um, and your bachelor's degree? Um, yeah, yeah let's ask that completely first. different, completely different. So in a bachelor's degree, um, it's, it's about the application of theory. It's about, um, really just reading um, textbooks about how to teach the understanding of psychology mm -hmm. and the basic science. It's kind of like applied version of Psych 101. Okay. And then it's about those immersive experiential things um, um, where you would actually um, take the things that you learned in class and apply them then um, in the real life setting. And that's basically it. It's classroom, practicum, classroom, practicum, and it's done. Uh, there are some uh, longer programs now that are more of a master's, um, and that would have some level of a program evaluation or, or some kind of uh, research scholarly project. Mm -hmm. And I think um, my alma mater, Boise U of T, um, actually only has a master's now. They don't have a bachelor's um, of education anymore Interesting. Um, because they evolved their program to be more inclusive and uh, of those higher skills. Yeah. Um, in my master's, um, it was more theoretical, um, just with most masters. Um, there was no requirement for practicum. The, 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 um, the expectation was that, uh, you, if you wanted to teach, you would just be doing that as your real job. Um, and that you might use your classroom learnings, um, to power your work in the real life setting, yeah. but you also might bring your real life work into your master's classes. So it's more like an MBA. Right. So an MBA usually doesn't have intercalated work experiences. They expect you to come with work experience and then use the MBA to digest and re reflect and then apply what you've learned retrospectively to the experiences that you've had. And so it's, it's more in that kind of professionals school vein. Uh, at my master's, we also had a mandatory thesis component. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, um, set up and then complete a research project. Okay. All right. So what which would not have been a requirement, sorry, which w was not at all a requirement of our bachelor's program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you also mentioned, uh, in your previous spiel that, um, you needed 
a master's of professional education, at least a master's level degree in education in order to sit on the committees and to do the work that you were doing. Why is that? Is that, is that just something that's expected in like medical administration and education? Is, just, is it like cultural context? I think there's some culture. I think mm. the expertise is important too, right? Yeah. And so the master signifies that you've done advanced training, that you've got actual credentials and chops and has gone through experience um, that gives you a perspective on and a, f a facility really with mm -hmm. the, with the literature that you've actually delved deep and you've uh, learned to apply all these concepts mm -hmm. um, in a scholarly way, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's why. I think in a lot of places, uh, in order to get a faculty position, increasingly, there's a requirement for some level of uh, advanced training beyond your residency mm -hmm. and your MD. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll follow that away so I'm able to keep that in mind when I go on to do my postgraduate education. But we'll, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll go back to, I guess, the specialty that you went into. You went through med school. Um, I, I guess, did you have any experiences during med school which you found shaped your path to where you are now? Uh, I think that I was interested in emergency medicine because I like the pace. Yeah. Um, I realized that I'm at my best when I have a lot of things being thrown at me. I have the capabilities of being able to juggle multiple tasks and switch between, between them, mm -hmm. not seamlessly, but not as interrupted as others. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I made a joke the other day at a presentation that, you know, attention deficit is not a disorder if it's what you're supposed to do, right? And so if you're supposed to do rapid Sorry. task switching um, constantly, it's, it is a problem if you're trying to get a five-year-old to like stay put in the classroom. Yeah. But it's not a problem if I'm supposed to constantly pay attention to the whole situation, juggle between 16 patients and be able to immediately flip over when the charge nurse walks up to me and says, we have an incoming VSA arrest and uh, they're arriving in five minutes. Yeah. I need to be able to park everything I was thinking, drop off the things I needed to do, tr immediately triage that, and then go and get ready for someone who has no pulse to be received in the trauma bay or the recess bay, right? Yeah. And so that is something that I know that I discovered about myself and Understanding that I am very good in crisis situations where I'm balancing multiple things allowed me to see that that was literally what I would do every day um, within the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that exact scenario. It's a little bit, it's a little calmer <laughs> than that most of the time. But there are times when it's, there's five very acute patients that are coming in and you're bouncing from your room to room and then you have to recalibrate and take care of the other patients that were on the go. Honestly, I've, I, I've seen that because I did a few electives in Emerge and it's always like amazing how docs can just bounce back and forth and handle so many different situations that are escalating at a time. It's, it's, it's kind of like artwork to some extent, because there's so much that has to go into a court to coordinate it well, but there's so much knowledge and experience behind that. Um, so tell me about your thesis work. Yeah, so the thesis work that I did was actually to examine what I've just been describing. Okay. How we learn to navigate multi-patient environments. And so that's what I did for my master's thesis was that I sat at a computer one day in my fifth year residency. I had been thinking about doing a whole bunch of different topics, but I had this moment where I was running the whole department. My attending had gone to get a coffee or something, I think for both of us. And I had two learners that I was um, taking you know, charge of, and they were reviewing with me. And when the, when my attendant came back, coffee in hand, handed to me and said, okay, let's run the list. 
I went through the entire list of 16 patients. I knew which house staff was supposed to do what. I knew which things had to be done for what patient. I knew exactly what was going on at all times. And I was like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Because the PGY1 sitting next to me could barely handle explaining the one patient that they had and I had to support them in it. And I'm like, how did I get from being like that person to being the person I am now? And that moment of realization was a moment I said, there's a skill set here that we teach and or learn, and it's not well articulated because it wasn't something that as a senior resident, I was in intuitively taught by attendings or had an algorithmic, sorry, it was something that I intuitively was taught um, through my training, but it wasn't something that an attending ever pulled me inside and said, this is how you do this. And these are steps you follow. And so I was like, that's probably an area ripe for discussion then. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I fell into this chasm, um, of unknown territory. And so then you have to build your way back out. And so as a researcher that, uh, spurred me to put, um, a, a grant in and actually have formulated a plan for a study proposal. And then we embarked on a, actually a program of research around how people teach and learn in multi-patient environments and how we engage in that task prioritization and other things that came out of the literature. Mm -hmm. So you, you talked about, you've talked at length about task prioritization, uh, as an emergency medicine physician, but I mean, I think you were, you were gently prodding me towards one of the more, uh, I guess more fascinating things that you've done that I also mentioned in the introduction, gridlocked. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, uh, went and did my thesis. I published a paper about, you know, um, why, you know, like why and how people don't flow the department and how they learn to do that. Right. So like the, we, there's a paper called failure to flow, which is looking at all the trial and tribulations of teaching and environments and how we don't always give learners a chance to actually flow the department. So how do they ever learn? Right. Yeah. Um, we did, uh, look at, um, a study that talked about managing multiplicity, understanding like the cognition of how people actually, uh, navigate multiple patients and how they actually do all that stuff. And, uh, lo and behold, like you said, there's an expertise that's required. Um, and my analogy would be when you handle multiple patients, it's like you spend a good chunk of your training learning how all the chess pieces move. Mm -hmm. And then only then after you understand how every piece moves, then you can start playing chess. Right. And so, um, it's just that in, in the emergency department, if you think about the patients like chess pieces that you need to anticipate their movements and, and, and really you're trying to understand how everything's going to flow and fit. Well, there's just a lot more chess pieces <laughs> and there's a lot of permutations. And so. You, you start to then create these archetypes of, of, of patients that then you can in their, your head chunk them in some kind of anticipatory story to say, okay, this is a middle-aged female who likely doesn't have chest pain, but is really worried about her chest pain being something bad. And so that phenotype becomes a story that you tell in your head about what needs to be done for this patient and how long that's going to take and who's going to be involved in that patient's care. And you have like all these scripts there in your head that's about wild. that, but there's a functionality to it. So that's, that's how people learn how to balance multiple patients is that they know each of those patients as some kind of phenotype, some kind of story in their head, and then they're just playing with the pieces. So that's the next paper. Then we, then we actually, um, did a follow-up on 
how, you know, we coach in this chaos and how actually teachers do survive and what strategies they do use to be able to teach people how to handle multiple patients. And, and after those three studies, we realized a big chunk of what was missing about prioritization and teaching that is that there was no safe place for a learner like yourself to be able to engage in that thinking and learning that skill, because the only way that we have right now to do it is probably either a massive simulation, which costs so much money and, and we can do it every other year in our residency program <laughs> or, and that's only once that you can do it. And really only one person can be in charge. And so it's going to take a long time or a lot of money for everyone to do that. Like, or we could be thinking about other low cost, low budget op opportunities to be able to, um, do the same thing. So we created Gridlocked. And so Gridlocked was a knowledge translation project that takes all of the learning from my thesis and tries to create a platform for people to then teach and learn about multi-patient environments within a safe, really simulated, but it's a serious game environment uh, that's more analogous to what um, healthcare and um, municipal leaders often engage in something called tabletop exercises for disaster preparedness. Not something like the pandemic so far. <laughs> you know, there's a forward game about the pandemics, obviously, but, uh, but it's actually uh, like, for instance, if uh, we have a nuclear reactor in, 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 on the McMaster campus, and so the idea would be okay. So what happens if something goes wrong? And then we do drills and exercises about how we would respond to that. What would fire do? What would the police do? What would the hospitals have to prepare for? What other military and or governmental agencies have to be involved? And they do these simulations. It's kind of like model UN for like healthcare providers and like, you know, municipal leaders. And so they do those quite regularly. And so we thought, well, shouldn't there be a desktop tabletop, sorry, shouldn't there be a tabletop simulation? for the emergency department, because isn't every day sort of a little bit of a disaster, right? Because we're, you know, even before the pandemic at running at, you know, 105%. And so it's never an optimal situation. And so understanding how we can do that is important. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the gridlocked board game became a thing. And so we co-designed that with a bunch of, well, they're senior residents now, but they were medical students at the time. And one of them is an attending now because he did family medicine. Um, and so we co-developed that with three faculty members and three uh, medical students. And then we got into production the, with a fourth medical student the next summer. And, um, and, and, and we got what going. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>